Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This past weekend, or I should probably say this week, there weren't a ton of new movies that came out. There was only one film that was released theatrically, or at least released in wide release theatrically, and that will be the first movie that I will be reviewing today, which is The Batman. This is the latest Batman film, of course. It differentiates itself, at least in title, from other Batman movies by having the in the title. And there was actually a, an animated TV series that aired on Kids WB before it became the CW from 2004 to 2008. It was also called The Batman. But to my knowledge, this movie, The Batman, is not related to that other TV series. And also, the story is, other than the fact that it is based on characters created by Bill Finger and Bob Kane, i.e. the original creators of the Batman character, it is a wholly new story written by Matt Reeves and Peter Craig. And Matt Reeves is the person who directed this film, and he has actually had a lot of success, a few failures, but mainly success as a director. He's probably most notable for having directed the movie Cloverfield from 2008. My God, uh, 14 years ago. I went to see that in theaters on its opening weekend. And that was the film that revitalized, for better or for worse, the found footage genre. I actually thought it was one of the better found footage movies. But with that said, I wish I had taken some Dramamine before going to the theater to see that because I got motion sick really fast. He also directed Let Me In, which was a movie starring Chloe Grace Moretz, which was a controversial remake of the Swedish film Let the Right One In. And because of the backlash from even American fans of Let the Right One In, Let Me In was a commercial failure, but not a critical failure. But he made up for that, Matt Reeves did, by directing Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and War for the Planet of the Apes, two films that were sequels to the rise of the planet of the apes that were really, really good sequels, by the way, I especially loved war for the planet of the apes, which was the third film in that trilogy. And I'm waiting for a fourth planet of the apes movie, but it's been over five years. I don't know if one's going to come. And if one does come, it's not going to be directed by Matt Reeves. So Matt Reeves certainly has a keen eye when it comes to remakes. In other words, he can make remakes really good. And in my opinion, the Batman is no exception. So in the Batman, the Cape Crusader is taken over here or is played here by Robert Pattinson, who plays not only Batman, but also Bruce Wayne. And he plays him very well. I don't know if he necessarily plays him better than Michael Keaton or Christian Bale did, but he plays him better than just about everyone else, most especially Ben Affleck. And I don't exactly know if Ben Affleck left the role of Batman by choice or if he was forced out by Warner Brothers, but it's a damn good thing that Ben Affleck is not playing Batman anymore because, in my opinion, he was pretty terrible. And there are even some people who are defenders who say, 
eh, he might not be the best, but he's better than George Clooney. I disagree with that, but I'm not going to get into exactly why. But my point is that Robert Pattinson had some very large shoes to fill, not to mention a very large cape and mask, but he does very well in this film. So what is Batman's mission in the movie, the Batman? Well, the Riddler is a sadistic serial killer who begins murdering key political figures in Gotham and the Batman is forced to investigate the city's hidden corruption and question his family's involvement. In the meantime, he also has some run-ins with another masked vigilante who is not known as Catwoman, but everybody kind of knows that she is. She's known by her name, Selina Kyle, and she's played in this film by Zoe Kravitz, who uh, also has some very uh, big shoes to fill, not to mention a big uh, suit. But um, she also holds her own in this film as Catwoman and certainly does a lot better than Halle Berry did. But as for Anne Hathaway, I'm not exactly sure. That's a very tough comparison, but I would probably go as far as to say that Zoe Kravitz acts better as Catwoman in this film, who is never referenced as Catwoman, by the way, than Anne Hathaway did. And the chemistry between her and Robert Patton Pattinson is very good. In fact, it's even better than Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart in the Twilight films. A lot better. And it's great to see Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart this year officially break away from the stigma of the Twilight films. But it's not just Robert Pattinson and Zoe Kravitz who do uh, really well in this film. There's also Jeffrey Wright who plays the first uh, Lieutenant uh, Gordon, who later becomes Commissioner Gordon, although not in this film, of color. And Jeffrey Wright plays off very well with Batman, who in this film is more of a confidant with Lieutenant uh, slash Commissioner Gordon than he was in previous films. And he's not seen quite as much as an adversary to the Gotham police as he was in previous films, especially the dark Knight trilogy. But I think that works very well in this cinematic universe. And as for the serial killer, that is the Riddler. He's played by Paul Dano and the movie actually doesn't introduce an unmasked Paul Dano until about three quarters of the way in. But I really love how Matt Reeves, Craig, excuse me, Peter Craig and Paul Dano simultaneously reinvent the Riddler because I was thinking back when the dark Knight came out that Heath Ledger successfully reinvented the Joker in a way that not even the comic book artists who contributed to the Batman series ever did. And when we were, when my friends and I were speculating about what the next Dark Knight movie would be, we were thinking about what other Batman villains could be introduced into the third film in the Dark Knight trilogy, and this is way before 2012, by the way, and not a lot of villains, frankly, came to mind, like Catwoman, Mr. Freeze, 
Poison Ivy, Harley Quinn and all the rest. They just seemed particularly tacky. They worked well in the Batman TV series with Adam West, but in a darker version of the Batman films, I didn't quite know if the Riddler could be as dark as before, but Paul Dano, to his credit, made the Riddler very, very dark and frankly, very, very scary. And I do think that the Riddler, when he was played by Jim Carrey in Batman Forever, was certainly comic relief, and he was very goofy, and that worked for that film. I actually think it worked uh, very well, but man, I loved the reinvention of the Riddler as kind of a combination between the Heath Ledger's Joker and also maybe even a little bit of the Son of Sam, but it worked incredibly well. So the Riddler is very uh, smart when it comes to puzzles and wordplay, but he's also very scary and is usually seen uh, masked up. He also could be compared not only to the Son of Sam, but also to Jigsaw from the Saw series. And I think taking all these characters and amalgamating them into the Riddler really uh, worked here. But another really smart move that this movie made was that the Riddler was more of a background character than he was the central focus of the movie. There's actually more of an emphasis on the corruption in Gotham and particularly amongst its politicians, as well as its organized crime members like Carmine Falcone, who's played in this movie very well by John Turturro. It's not John Turturro's first time playing somebody in the mob, but he plays them very well in, in this film as well. And there's just a lot that I loved about the Batman. I think it differentiated itself from the other Batman movies in its quest to be very dark. Uh, I mean, of, of course, the Dark Knight trilogy was very dark, but this was dark and twisted. And even more so, if, if that can even be believed, than the movie The Dark Knight from 2008. But I loved just about everyone who acted in this film. I loved Andy Serkis as the new Alfred, and he played off, he played off uh, Robert Pattinson's Bruce Wayne very well, and they had a good uh, chemistry going on together. I did think it was a bit of a shame that Unfortunately, one of the uh, casualties of Ben Affleck playing Batman and Bruce Wayne was that uh, Jeremy Irons, I thought, made a good Alfred. Maybe not as good as Michael Guff from the Tim Burton and and Joel Schumacher movies or Michael Caine from the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight series, but I thought Jeremy Irons could have been a good Alfred. But Andy Serkis, I think, made up for what the absence of Jeremy Irons might have brought to the screen here. But I really loved the Batman. It was two hours, 55 minutes, nearly three hours, which is kind of hard to believe for any movie that's coming out these days because a lot of times if a movie is more than two and a half hours, it's considered a liability. But to this movie's credit, I think that it was paced incredibly well. I think that... It made Gotham feel like as real a city as the movie Joker starring Joaquin Phoenix did. And I don't exactly know if um, Joaquin Phoenix's The Joker is tied to this cinematic universe of the Batman. But 
regardless of whether or not he is, I think Joaquin Phoenix's Joker would make a good addition to a potential sequel to this film. But I was very impressed by the movie, The Batman. I think it has a very, it had some very tough acts to follow, particularly, as I said, the Dark Knight trilogy, which was nearly perfect. A few imperfections in the movie Batman Begins, but not too bad overall. And of course, Tim Burton's Batman movies, which paved the way for grittier and darker cinematic adaptations of the Batman. And I think overall, the Batman is a win. And in my uh, estimation, in my opinion, the Batman is a knockout. Robert Pattinson had a lot going against him playing the Batman and Bruce Wayne, but he did an amazing job in this film, a lot better than Ben Affleck ever even dreamed of being. So... Not only move over Ben Affleck, but move over and out. But the supporting cast of just about everyone involved, Zoe Kravitz, Jeffrey Wright, Colin Farrell, Paul Dano, John Turturro, Andy Serkis, Peter Sarsgaard, and many others that I, I don't have time to mention here, did an excellent job in this film. I think it's a it's not the first dark chapter of The Dark Knight, but it sets up a very appealing cinematic universe that even if you're tired of comic book movies, and I'm not yet, um, I would still love to see two or three sequels to this film, and I hope that somebody delivers some of these sequels, and judging from the way this movie was, a lot of those sequels are welcome, hopefully they're good. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Cursed. The Cursed is a movie that is directed and written by Sean Ellis. Sean Ellis has directed several movies up to this point, but none of them I've actually seen. He was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film in 2005 for a movie called Cashback, which, now that I've seen this film, I definitely have to see those other ones. And he has directed such feature films as The Broken, Metro Manila, uh, Anthropoid, and, of course, this movie, The Curse. I haven't seen any of those films. Uh, and he also directed a actually a, a full-length uh, feature of the movie Cashback, which the the short was animated, but the full-length film was live action, so uh, go figure. But anyway, uh, th- this is probably Sean Ellis's breakthrough role, and as a horror film, I think it's okay, but I'm going to tell you why it's okay. So it takes place in rural 19th century France, but you never exactly know that because everybody in the movie speaks English. And a mysterious, possibly supernatural menace threatens a small village to the point where John McBride, who is a pathologist, comes to town to investigate the danger and exercise some of his own demons in the process. 
And this movie started out actually with a really good premise where it starts out in the trenches of World War One, sometime around 1917 on the Western Front. And there is a soldier that is brought to a hospital bed after suffering multiple gunshot wounds. And the doctor re- removes the bullets and finds one bullet that is not a German firearm, but is rather shaped like a tooth. And then the man is brought back home to his lavish estate. And then the movie cuts back literally uh, 35 years earlier to the year 1892, where, excuse me, 1872, where um, he and his sister live in this, this same estate, and their father gets involved in a conflict between the people who own the land around him and a band of gypsies. And eventually, the, the landowners attack the gypsies and actually kill some of them in probably one of the uh, best scenes in the movie, and certainly very gruesome, the way that these villagers... Uh, kill the gypsies. It's even more gruesome when there's one woman who is obviously a witch who gets buried alive. And (laughs) of course, when you bury a gypsy woman alive, particularly in the rules of, of movies, bad things happen. And in this movie, there's certainly no exception. I actually thought one of the best MacGuffins in this film was a set of teeth that look like their uh, vampire teeth or werewolves teeth, but they're um, they're a set of uh, silver teeth that if somebody puts them in their mouth, they become possessed, which kind of begs the question, why would somebody put those uh, teeth in their mouth? But somebody eventually does in this film and begins killing off the children, even though it's the adults that, killed off this band of gypsies. And I think that the cinematography in this movie is very good. And when the, the atmosphere starts to get cloudy and foggy, it creates a very good, um, atmosphere, uh, for horror. But once you actually see the incantation of the supernatural menace that comes to life and starts haunting these villagers, it is actually kind of a letdown because I actually thought that if the woman who was the gypsy witch uh, came back to life and started floating in air, that would be scary enough. But the movie actually makes the supernatural menace kind of look like a professional wrestler. He has a bald head, he has tattoos, and of course he has those sharp teeth. And at that point, once you know what the supernatural creature looks like and the fact that he starts killing random people for no particular reason other than the fact that they're related to the people who killed the gypsies, the movie really begins to lose its uh, scary focus. In addition to that, I think they cut way back to 1872 and stayed there for way too long. I actually wanted to see how this supernatural being would reappear 
during World War I in 1917, but it cuts a, a lot quicker back to 1872, which makes it feel like it's um, it's an elongated flashback, but it's just it feels like overlong exposition. So I was disappointed by the curse. I liked the atmosphere. I've, I liked the cinematography. But once you found out actually what the supernatural creature looked like, all, all terror kind of went out the window. So the curse to me is a strikeout because even the title of the film isn't particularly original. As a matter of fact, the movie was originally going to be called Eight for Silver. Why it wasn't called Eight for Silver... I don't exactly know. It would make sense that it's called Eight for Silver because it has these um, sharp teeth that are made out of silver that the gypsies created. And that seems to me like a more original name than The Cursed. I don't know if there's any other movie that's, that's titled Cursed or The Cursed, but I know there's at least been one TV show. But the fact that this these people are cursed, doesn't exactly make it a unique film. There was a lot about this film that could have been unique, and there's a lot that could have been scary. But the way that the supernatural creatures or the menace reveals itself really isn't scary. And once it does, the story becomes very predictable and very boring. So I was bored by the curse. I wouldn't call it one of the best horror films of the year. I wouldn't call it one of the worst either, especially when the the year is so young, but it certainly wasn't my favorite either. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Tall Girl 2, which of course is the sequel to the movie Tall Girl from 2019, which debuted on Netflix on September 13th. Tall Girl 2, like the original Tall Girl, is also a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on February 11th. So I am a little late to the party, but... Uh, I am, I've got a lot of uh, films to catch up on for you. Plus with the Batman being the only new film to premiere in theaters, I didn't have as much to see, but tall girl two is a movie that I wasn't exactly looking forward to, particularly because the movie tall girl had some particular problems with it, but all overall wasn't a bad film. I can't exactly say very much for the original. But we're joined again with uh, Jody Craman, who is an exceptionally tall girl in, his cla- in, in her um, high school, which is in New Orleans. Jody Craman is played by real life tall girl Ava Michelle, who is six foot two in real life. But I would doubt that if she was in a high school, particularly one that was in a highly populated area like New Orleans, that she would be the tallest person in her school. But 
I, I guess in this school, she is freakishly tall, but even though six foot two is above average, a height for anyone, let alone a woman, I wouldn't say it's freakishly tall. If she was six foot five or over, that would probably be more than unusual. But in this movie, she, I, I guess, uh, she's stigmatized for her height, or at least she was in the original film, but in tall girl Two, the tables have turned a little bit. She's more popular now. Thanks to, um, one of the standard high school, uh, misfit speeches that she made at the end of the original film that got her instant popularity, but she's still struggling with her insecurities and the insecurities part is relatable and realistic because even if you have something that makes you different from everyone else in high school, that's an asset high school kids, whether jealousy or whether, you know, motivated by jealousy or the comforts of fitting in and assimilating will make fun of you for anything about you that is different. I have personal experience about this, not being tall necessarily, but well, <laughs> having the voice that I have, that's particularly deep. Oh yeah. People made fun of my voice constantly. So I can certainly relate, but what didn't really work about this film was it's predictability because after the character, Jody Kramen gains popularity, her miscommunications start causing rifts for those around her. And now she really needs to stand tall, at least figuratively, because standing tall literally is not a problem for her. But it her insecurities start when she auditions for the school play, which is Bye Bye Birdie, and she gets actually the lead role in the movie, uh, in, the, in the play, that is. And her understudy is mean girl Kimmy Stitcher, who's played in this film by Clara Wilsey, who's one of the few students at this high school who is not exactly warmed up to Jody yet and continues to be mean. And I guess that's a predictable trait in this film. But what doesn't really work is that eventually Clara Wilsey begins to have a change of heart, but it's not fully explained why that is. And there are also way too many subplots involving some of the other supporting students in this movie, in this high school. And there are certain love connections that happen here that seem a bit disingenuous because of the lack of chemistry, but also because there are way too many love triangles here. And eventually... Jody has a falling out because of her insecurities with her shorter boyfriend, Jack Dunkelman, who's played here by Griffin Gluck, who I guess you could call adorkable if people still use that word anymore. I don't know if that's to 2014 or whatever, but there's a bit of a contrived falling out between the two of them. They break up and Jack Dunkelman played by Griffin Gluck is a little less sweet than he was in the original film and creepier in my opinion, than he probably should be because there's one anecdote that he mentions here, how he's had a crush on this girl, Jody, since he was in the second grade and he gave her a note that said, I like you. Do you like me? And then the check Mark check yes or no. And she writes her own check mark that says, 
maybe, and checks it off, which is kind of a diss if you really think about it. But in one of the most contrived circumstances in this film, he actually gives her the same note that he wrote in the second grade, and he has it framed, which, yeah, kind of creepy there. But not only that, but when you see the note and you see how well it's written, I immediately saw that note and thought to myself, there is no way a second grader had that legible handwriting. No way at all. That looks like the handwriting of, well, an adult, basically. And I don't know. There's there's one scene where they make up and... Jody, without us seeing it, takes the letter, I guess, out of its frame and crosses off maybe and then checks off yes. Maybe that's supposed to be a sweet moment, but she probably should be thinking to herself, why the hell did he keep this note for at least uh, eight years? What is he still doing with it? And why the hell did he have it framed? That is so weird. But also, the, the falling out that the two have, particularly when... Uh, Jody has a flirtation with the uh, co-star in the Bye Bye Birdie show, whose name is Tommy Torres, who's played by Jan Luis uh, Castellanos, is also a bit contrived and also Jack Dunkelman's complete falling apart after Jody kisses Tommy when Jody and Jack are broken up, by the way, so it shouldn't be that big a deal. It just kind of showcases him as a jerk. But the movie makes you want to believe that he's not a jerk or a creep. Seeing the movie myself, I have to disagree with that. So high school films are not really, uh, are a mixed bag, no matter who's making them. But what really hindered Tall Girl 2 over the original Tall Girl was its predictability. Once you knew who was going to fall in love, you knew what was going to happen. And you also, the falling out between Jody and Jack and their eventual reconciliation was also um, very predictable. Plus, one thing that always kind of got me about the, the tall girl movies so far they're not perfect. They do have their moments of poignancy and enjoyability is apparently this school, which is in new Orleans, which looks like it it's a well-to-do school and they don't have any problems with lack of funding. Apparently they don't have a basketball team. Cause if you have a girl who is over six feet tall, wouldn't somebody almost instantly recruit her to the basketball team? It doesn't even matter um, if she's played basketball in her life or not, but apparently this movie makes you want to believe that the school doesn't have a basketball team, which, which I immediately call BS on. And there are also some other scenes where these high schoolers have these lavish parties that are put on by the school themselves. And I'm watching these parties and I'm thinking, I did not even go to a party that was 10 times that nice, uh, or rather one tenth that nice when I was in high school. And that includes the prom because the prom was pretty lavish, but this movie makes my, the parties in this, um, movie make my prom look like a, um, a hoedown. 
That's the only uh, low-budget dance I can think of. So Tall Girl 2 is not a terrible movie, but it gets my rating of a strikeout because it is one high school cliche after another. Not only a high school cliche, but also a romantic comedy cliche, one over the other, which doesn't particularly work. And every relationship that forms in this movie is entirely predictable, and I've seen them in other films before. So Tall Girl 2 does not stand out amongst other high school comedies or romantic comedies, in my humble opinion. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters or on streaming, depending on what I tell you, uh, for the week of March 7th through March 11th, 2022. So we'll get to the movies that are coming out in theaters, and a lot of these movies that are coming out look particularly low budget, and I think largely that happens when a big movie like The Batman comes out. The weekend before, the weekend of, and the weekend after are usually when films that that don't have a chance against The Batman come out, because a lot of times, two huge... um, blockbuster films don't come out either on the same weekend or on uh, simultaneous weekends. So there's no way that two movies that are based on comic books, for example, would come out the same weekend or close to the same weekend. Now there could be another film that's the antithesis of the Batman, for example, like a romantic comedy that would, would come out. But mainly a lot of the other films that maybe have a chance without that blockbuster, mainly just duck and cover and don't come out until two weekends after. I don't know why that is. It's just the way the movies work. But So these next two films that are subject to be released in theaters on March 11th may not necessarily be coming to a theater near you just based on what looks like their budget and the, the actors who are in the film are not particularly high-profile A-list actors. So I'm just going to tell you what these films are. So one film that is subject to be released in theaters on March 11th is a movie that's called Tyson's Run. This is a movie about an unathletic boy with autism who strives to become an unlikely marathon champion, giving giving his unfulfilled father... Hang on. Yeah, this was uh, misprinted. Let me start over. So it's an unathletic boy with autism strives to become an unlikely marathon champion given his unfulfilled father's purpose 
and a second chance at putting his family first. So other than the marathon, it's a bit of a vague title. The movie stars Major Dodson, Amy Smart, Barkhad Abdi, and Layla Felder. Barkhad Abdi is a is a name I have not heard for a very long time, but Barkhad Abdi is an Academy Award-nominated actor who was nominated for the film Captain Phillips, and he was great in that film. He's also been in a couple of uh, other excellent films, such as Eye in the Sky, which was an underrated film from 2015, and Blade Runner 2049. He is a native of Somalia, so it's good to see him acting in such films. Amy Smart's one of those actresses I see from time to time. I used to see her a lot in uh, films that came out in the early aughts, like uh, Road Trip, for example, and The Butterfly Effect, but I haven't seen her for a while. I guess she plays the the autistic boy's uh, mother. I don't know. I don't know if this film is coming out in theater near me. I also don't know if the film is going to be coming out on a streaming platform. It seems like one of those films that would be a shoe in for a Netflix original. But as far as I know, it isn't. But it is coming out on March 11th somewhere. If I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show or the next show that I do. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Off Season. This is a film that stars... One person that I know, but many other people that I don't. It's a movie about a woman who, after receiving a mysterious letter, travels to a desolate island town and soon becomes trapped in a nightmare. This letter must have been really convincing because I think it would take more than a letter for me to go to a desolate island town. But that's the uh, plot of this film right here. The movie stars Jocelyn Donahue, Joe Swanberg, Richard Brake, and Melora Walters. Melora Walters is the only one that I know from this movie, but it's a film that is subject to be released in theaters the weekend of March 11th. I don't know if I'm going to see this one, but I'll give it my best shot. And if I do, I'll let you know what I think on my next show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now it's time for me to run down the movies that are subject to being released in theaters, excuse me, not in theaters, but on streaming for the week of March 7th through March 11th, 2022. And there are a couple of foreign films that are going to be released on Netflix on Tuesday, March 8th. One of them is a comedy special and I don't review comedy specials, but if you want to check it out, the comedy special is called Taylor Tomlinson. Look at you. The reason I don't review comedy specials on words on film is not only are they not technically films unless they've been released in theaters, like some of Kevin Hart's comedy movies have been. And by comedy movies, I mean him doing stand up. but the, the way comedy specials work is there's always somebody at, a microphone on stage and they're either funny or they're not. 
And there isn't really any skill or any uh, especially um, notable type of skill that comes with filming a stand-up comedy special because the comedian is only in one place. It's not like the cinematography of an actual film or a documentary. So I don't do comedy specials. But if you're interested, Taylor Tomlinson, Look at You, coming out on Netflix on Tuesday, March 8th. Also on that same day, a film called Autumn Girl is going to be released in theaters. This is a Polish film, and it is about a stage and screen actress named Kalina Jedrusik, who is a scandalous, free-spirited sex symbol who fights for her independence in the prude society of the 1960s. So I wouldn't exactly say that I seek out Polish films. I, I basically see any film that comes to me. But this one sounds particularly interesting, and the fact that it takes place in the 1960s is certainly an asset. The movie stars Maria Debska, Lezek Lichota, and Krzysztof Zalewski. I'm so happy I didn't trip up on those names either. I don't know those actors, but Autumn Girl is a film that I may see, and I will let you know what I think if I see it on my next show. The next film that is coming out on Wednesday, March 9th, which is also a Netflix original like Autumn Girl, is one that's called The Bombardment. And this might be the same movie that is a film called The Shadow in My Eye. The reason I say that is because I looked this film up on IMDb. I typed in Bombardment, and this was the most recent film that came out. But it is a Danish film, meaning that it's from uh, Denmark. And it takes place on May, uh, excuse me, on March 21st, 1945. So months before the end of World War II in Europe. And the in this movie, the British Royal Air Force sets out on a mission to bomb Gestapo's headquarters in Copenhagen, nah, Copenhagen, Denmark. The raid has fatal consequences as raids would do as some of the bombers accidentally targeted a school and more than 120 uh, people were killed, 86 of whom were children. Ooh, that's rough. Uh, to say the least, it was written by Ole Bornedal, who also directed the film. I don't know if it's based on a true story or not, given the information that's been given to me here. It might be, though, because it seems like one of those incidents, particularly in wartime, that seems way too awful to be untrue. So I might see this film. I can't exactly guarantee it. I don't know if this is the same film as The Bombardment, but according to my research, it is. But I will let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. And the next film, the actually only other Netflix original that is going to be released on the weekend of Mar excuse me, the week of March 7th through March 11th and is actually coming out on Friday, March 11th is a film that's called The Adam Project. This is the only American Netflix original film. And The Adam Project is a film that stars Ryan Reynolds who has not been my favorite actor of late, but I always give him a chance because maybe, just maybe, he's going to drop the smug act and actually give us a good film. But this is an action film, and it is about a time-traveling pilot who teams up with his younger self and his late father to 
come to terms with his past while saving the future. So the older time traveling pilot is named Adam and he's played by Ryan Reynolds, his younger self with whom he, uh, eventually teams up is played by Walter Scobell, who's a, a young actor. And I could look up his filmography, but I don't really have time to do that right now. His, um, the, the other people who co-star in this film include Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Garner, Zoe Saldana, and Catherine Keener. So we have a really good supporting cast holding up uh, Ryan Reynolds here. And a lot of people have asked me if I hate Ryan Reynolds. I don't, but first of all, I think he's overrated. Th- secondly, I think he's overbearingly smug. And third, I don't think his movies, including some of the ones that were big hits, were especially great. A lot of people have been um, talking about the movie Free Guy because that's actually been released on HBO Max and Disney+. Plus. And to me, first of all, I thought Ryan Reynolds was miscast in it. You're supposed to have somebody who's guy who is a likable person. And to me, Ryan Reynolds is obnoxious in his smugness and is not nearly as likable as other people who could have been in the role like Paul Rudd or Seth Rogen or somebody else like that. But I am going to give the movie The Adam Project a chance because maybe, just maybe, Ryan Reynolds will impress me. For me, I'm... No performance, no actor, and no movie is guilty until proven innocent. It's good until proven bad, as far as I'm concerned. So I will see The Adam Project, and I will let you know what I think on the next show. So that just about does it for original movies on Netflix. Let me see if I can find any other films on streaming platforms to which I actually subscribe. And by that, I mean not Apple TV. Although I will say that... Given the repertoire of films that are available on Apple TV, I might subscribe to it, but I don't exactly know if I will or not. But uh, there is a huge film that's coming out on Disney+. Plus. It is not only a Disney film, but it's a Disney animated film. And not only is it that, but it's also a Disney Pixar animated film. The movie is called Turning Red. And even though I've seen this movie... Um, advertised in theaters. And by that, I mean, I've seen the poster. I don't think it's actually being released in theaters. I think Disney made the decision to pull this from theaters and whether or not that's a good decision. I don't exactly know because you, I would imagine that streaming platforms would, or rather movies would lose potential money from being released on streaming platforms. But then again, it's easier to see movies on streaming than it is to go to the theaters, especially since COVID, uh, the, the COVID pandemic is still going on. It's not as strong as it was last year, but it's there. There's still a fear out there that's preventing a lot of people, including movie buffs like myself from going out and seeing such a film. But I feel a lot more comfortable going out and seeing movies now than I did last year around this time, especially since I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. But anyway, Turning Red is a movie about a 13-year-old girl named Mai Lee who turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets too excited. Now, looking at the poster, the creature to which she turns in does not look like a panda. It looks more like a giant fox. I mean, it's 
It's red. It doesn't have the circles around the eyes like pandas do. So a very interesting way of um, <laughs> making this creature into a panda, I would say. But uh, the voice talent in this film include uh, Rosalie Chang, who plays uh, Mai Lin. Um, there's also Sandra Oh, who plays Ming, who might be a teacher or a parent. I don't exactly know. There's also Ava Morse, uh, Maitri Rama, uh, Ramak Rishnan, uh, James Hong, one of the other actors who I know, in addition to Sandra Oh. And that just about does it for actors that I do know in this film. But that's okay, because sometimes I like to not know who the voice of a character is. Because I do think when you know who the voice of a character is, it does kind of take you out of a movie. And Disney has always been very good about hiring voice talent that is right for the characters, not necessarily a a voice actor who is an A-list talent, for example. And I think DreamWorks has kind of fallen into that trap of hiring well-known actors to do the voices of characters, even if those actors are not the right fit for those characters. But Disney has always been good about hiring the right talent. But... Turning Red is a film that I also will see along with The Atom Project, and I will let you know what I think on the next show. Not necessarily next week's show, because I might not be here next week, but I'm just saying, uh, eventually. Um, uh, So, on to HBO Max now, and it doesn't look like there are any original films that are going to be premiering for the week of... March 7th through March 11th. Certainly no uh, HBO original films, but the movie Dune, which was nominated for Best Picture, will be reappearing on HBO Max on Thursday, March 10th. So if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. Now on to Hulu. Maybe there's a, a new film that is premiering on that platform. And according to the the sources that I'm given... There was actually a film that I missed that came out on Friday, March 4th, and it was called Fresh, and it's a Hulu original, a Hulu original movie, that is, and I completely missed it, and I also didn't cover it on last week's show uh, in the What's Coming Up Next segment, but it's a film that stars Daisy Edgar Jones and Sebastian Stan, and I might play a little bit of catch-up by seeing this film, but... It's a movie about the horrors of modern dating seen through one young woman's defiant battle to survive her new boyfriend's unusual appetites. What those appetites are, I don't exactly know. But the horrors of modern dating, I don't know. That sounds very intriguing, and this is a movie that, you know what, I will see it, and I will review it for you on next week's show. But other than that, there are no Hulu originals that are going to be premiering on Hulu for the week of March 7th through March 11th. There are some other films that are going to be making an appearance on Hulu, but are not Hulu originals. One such movie is called India Sweets and Spices. This is billed as an original film. Let me see what the plot of the movie is. It is a film that, as you might imagine, is an Indian film, or at least from what I can see. And it is about a college freshman whose name is Aaliyah, 
who returns home for the summer and she discovers secrets and lies in her parents' past that make her question everything she thought she knew about her family. Kind of a vague um, setup right there. But the movie stars Sophia Ali, Manishka, Korala, and Rish Shah. It is definitely an Indian film and is actually from the producer of Crazy Rich Asians. So I can't exactly say that this is a Bollywood film. It's a movie that came out in 2021. It must have come out very independently, an independent release, because I had not heard of it before its appearance on Hulu. I might see it, but I will uh, let you know what I think on next week's show, if that's the case. And while I don't mention series, I should mention that on Wednesday, March 9th, the limited series finale of the limited series, Pam and Tommy, is going to be premiering on Hulu Original. And this may be a series that I will review for you on the next show, because I have been hooked on Pam and Tommy. It is a true story about the guy who robbed Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee back when they were married, discovered their honeymoon sex tape, and distributed that tape on the relatively young World Wide Web in 1995. And to show you how much times have changed, he put it on videotape and, and sold it to people on his website for $60 a piece. Yeah, that was before, long before we had YouTube, before Pornhub. And I just sort of feel like if this guy didn't do it, somebody else would have. But the acting in this film by the likes of Seth Rogen, Sebastian Stan, Lily James, Taylor Schilling, uh, Nick Offerman is phenomenal. And there's also... a uh, uh, a good supporting performance by Andrew Dice Play, Andrew Dice Clay, who plays the mobster Butchie Pariano, who actually was instrumental in creating the movie Deep Throat. And as this movie demonstrates, he also had a hand in the revolutionary um, porn of the 90s internet. So it is a fascinating series. But I'm, I have not reviewed it for you for this show yet because I haven't seen all of it because it hasn't come out yet. But this is one of those um, eight-episode series that if it was strung together into a four-hour film, I would watch it from beginning to end with the exception of the times that I take bathroom breaks because it is that good. So I will watch the exciting conclusion of Pam and Tommy next week, and I'll review it for you on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>